Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Monday. Welcome to The Scramble. So before I get us started here, let me tell you what my working hypothesis is, my operational theory, which is that last week during the Comey stuff, which was so reminiscent of Watergate, uh, that we somehow or other accidentally made a rent, a hole in the space-time continuum that connects the present to the time of Watergate. And so all this other kind of watergate stuff is coming flooding through that hole. And I have very solid quantum physics to back up that claim. So uh, two of the three uh, segments of our show today will have very powerful Watergate connections, starting with the first one. We'll tell you about that in two seconds. Then uh, the second one is uh, going to be, actually, I've misplaced the order of them. I think the second one of them will be the non-Watergate one, unless you can think of a way that the notion of Callista Gingrich as U.S. ambassador to the Vatican connects to Watergate somehow. I can't make that connection. There's just nothing for me to work with there. Uh, towards the end, Alan Burdick from The New Yorker, who's been with us in the past to talk about time, and thus probably could help me understand even better the physics of what's happening right now, is here instead of talking about swearing and how, in fact, people, particularly people in politics, including, of course, the president of the United States, feel comfortable openly uh, swearing uh, using, you know, I mean, the really bad ones for the most part um, these days in a way that they formerly did not. But he's going to connect that also to research into what swearing or uh, profanity does and does not do to our kind of body-mind connections. In other words, it turns out people who swear can sometimes, while they're swearing, do things uh, that they couldn't otherwise do, like hold their hands in freezing cold water and stuff like that. Anyway, it, that connects to Watergate because really prior to Watergate, essentially nobody had any clear picture of a president swearing. I, I say that and there's probably some Zachary Taylor thing that disproves it. But but basically, I, I, having been alive for a very long time, I can tell you that when the tapes came out and the transcripts of the tapes came out and one could either see or hear Nixon either swearing or they had this thing called expletive deleted, which actually became kind of a trope or a meme at that time, expletive deleted. And everybody went, wow, he's like this really foul mouthed guy, the president, you know, I'm sure all presidents have always sworn, but with a few exceptions. Uh, anyway, so that's that is to come. Right now, we're going to talk about something that has perhaps an even deeper connection to Watergate. Uh, and to help us out, uh, Juliet Eilprin, uh, senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post, is going to talk to us uh, about the disappearance of information from federal government websites. Uh, now, the connection to Watergate, obviously, is that in the wake of Watergate, a tremendous number of open government laws were passed, sunshine in government laws and ethics in government laws and presidential uh, records acts and stuff like that. And, I mean, FOI is sort of the, the one that we know that we talk about all the time. And the truth is attempts to chip away at FOI to make government documents harder to get are not new to today. They've been going on at least since Ronald Reagan uh, and perhaps longer. But what uh, Juliet is uh, here to talk about is something maybe, um, well, the numbers are kind of big here. So let's talk about them. First of all, Juliet Eilprin, sorry for the long introduction. Thanks for being on our show today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks. 
So um, just in terms of numbers, the numbers are big, right? I mean, if you just look at sort of data sets uh, available for public viewing on federal government websites, um, what, well, like th- right. well, yeah, you do the numbers. We, we, we've, we've lost them even in the last few months. So, uh, so basically uh, three months ago there were 195,245 public data sets um, available on www.data.gov. Um, and and uh, this week, this past week, it was just under 156,000. Um, and one, you know, interesting number for comparison. Although again, the problem is we don't have regular tracking. We're kind of dependent on, say, academics who you know have, have looked at this. But for example, in 2010, there were 300,000 data sets available um, on data.gov. So we've we've certainly seen a shrinking that we can document um, just within the last few months. But again, there could have been a number of document data sets lost, you know, even before then, because we have a, a researcher who looked at it in early February. So that's that's where things stand. So a lot of times the way that this comes up is some scientist is working on something or doing some research and using government data and goes back to a place that he or she was quite familiar right. with in the past. And suddenly there's like this kind of error message that pops up, right? Saying, right. oh, sorry, uh, these are not the droids you're looking for. Uh, go somewhere else or, or don't or go away. Um, right. Now, in some cases, Juliet, these things have been re-archived, but not right. with the kind of throughput permalink that we're kind of accustomed to. I mean, it sort of makes sense if you're going to re-archive something that when you click on on it and you know, click on some bunch of climate change data or whatever it is you're looking for, it'll say, right. oh, it's not there anymore, but here's where it is now. But they don't do right. that, right? Right. I mean, again, part of it, 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 you know, this is, as as you know, one academic reminded me, you know, this is only the third administration that had any online data, right? So we're really in kind of new territory, particularly because until now it had been all about adding information, and now we're in this era where information's being taken away. So there's no kind of, you know, it's all new territory, and, and so it's it's hard to know, you know, again, like what Technically, you would, you know, when you're in a library, you can shelve a book, and people can still access that book. Here, we have a we have a kind of a haphazard process that's going on. That where, for example, some agencies might say, "Look, we're going to give you a snapshot of what the data looked like before." But first of all, some of those links, as you're mentioning, might not work anymore. And then, when we have data analysts who are looking at some of these snapshots, they'll they'll say, "Look, you know what?" This link doesn't actually work anymore, and so you know, or they didn't ar- they didn't quite capture and archive it the way you know we're accustomed to preserving federal documents. And so there are lots of ways in which, you know, archiving data doesn't necessarily mean that the public has access to it the way they would, you know, in a much more traditional sense. Right. So it turns out that yeah, some of this stuff, if you really, really, really know how to look, and maybe you're a little bit better at looking for. Uh, looking for records uh, on the internet than you are at the thing that you're actually trying to do research about. You can occasionally uh, find something like the the Federal Supplier Greenhouse Gas Management Scorecard. It just isn't where it used to be, and there's nobody there to tell you where it is now, and there's no way of knowing. It's there somewhere, but you you can't find it. But so, and we can come back to that, Julia, but then there's some things that seem seem as though they really have been scrubbed and scrubbed for reasons that aren't terribly mysterious. For example, 
example, they're no longer publishing ethics waivers granted yeah. to lobbyists who would otherwise be barred for government service. Put that in some context for us. What, what is that information? What would it tell us right. if we could get this, it? In this more? is quite inf- important information, which was inaugurated. The disclosure of this was inaugurated under Barack Obama because he came in with an ethics pledge uh, and so put limitations on, on who could serve in his government. And so when on on occasion the administration hired people who didn't who needed an exemption who didn't quite fit that you know that standard that he had established they would post online a very specific a document which not only said we are granting this person an exception, but would spell out how they didn't comply with the rules. So in other words, this person lobbied for X entities and now on occasion will be allowed to talk to a couple of them because they're working on a broader issue like healthcare reform or, you know, some some other issue that's going on or they work with the Democratic National Committee and so there are political activities that occasionally need to be coordinated. It was a pretty specific document that really gave you a sense of how someone didn't meet the ethical test that the president had set out and how it affected their ongoing activities. Now, President Trump, just a couple days after taking office, issued his own ethics uh, pledge, which stated that Anyone who comes on to his administration could, if they've lobbied within the last two years on a specific issue, they were not allowed to be involved. They had to recuse themselves from those issues. They're not publicizing any ethics waivers. So we have no idea whether some of the people who obviously seem to have been working on some of these issues and continue to work on them now that they've switched from being a lobbyist to being a White House employee. We're not seeing that document. We're not seeing what exceptions uh, were granted. And so that is just a complete kind of black hole at this point. Right. So in the rhetoric of the campaign, uh, in terms of draining the swamp, yeah. Uh, this information would say, well, yes, this person is a nutria or, or an alligator or something, an alligator, right. you know, who really probably shouldn't be in a place that's not supposed to be a swamp. Here's why that person is an alligator. That's what makes that person an alligator and kind of also why apparently we're just going to kind of look the other way on that. Let this alligator be here. Uh, exactly. So that, so and going hand in hand with that is this other thing. And as you say, digital records don't have a long history. So you're never overturning a long and storied history of digital record keeping. But the Obama White House did this whole thing where you could sort of look at the logs. You could see who came and went from the Obama White House, which is, uh, you know, obviously an interesting thing to know is who's going to the White House, who's getting in where. Um, And that's been overturned, too. Has Has a rationale been offered there? You know, the rationale when you ask the administration on this is that uh, the that the administration is willing to is is uh, is is willing to comply with everything that is required under law. So, for example, that's what a spokesperson said that that the president made a commitment that his administration will absolutely follow the law and disclose any information it is required to disclose. So, these visitor laws do not. Um, do, do not uh, fall under. They're not legally obligated. It was, again, kind of an act of transparency that got a lot of attention under the previous administration and was something that certainly reporters and others hoped would be continued, but there, there's no legal requirement for them to do so, and they're not doing it. Um, now, um, in, in other cases, it's 
Well, actually, maybe the, a good way to do this is, I mean, you did yeah. find researchers who were looking for stuff and looking yeah. for stuff in a way that had some continuity with other stuff that they'd already looked at, and they were suddenly stonewalled. Maybe you can describe the experience of one of them. Sure. For example, there's a, uh, an environmental law professor at George Washington University here, here in the district, and he had been doing work on climate change. That's one of the things he focused on. And he was writing a law review article, and he had done footnotes. And when he had done the footnotes, he had, email, he had, he had copied down the link uh, where he had found some really kind of critical reports. We're talking about more, you know, they were more than 100 pages um, from the Bureau of Land Management talking about future climate impacts on broad regions of the United States. And he was just, you know, the law review was fact-checking the article and wanted him to look up a couple of these reports. And he went and he couldn't find them. And he said, you know, I didn't bother printing them out because they were so long. Um, and so now, and I always assumed they would be there, and they're not. Um, so that's, you know, so it, 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 it's things like that. Now, again, we, we did some hunting, and, you know, we found one of them had been moved to a different website. One of them had been archived. One of them's just gone. We can't find it anywhere. So, um, and we've seen this, you know, again, in multiple occasions that, that researchers who were used to finding documents in a certain place, they just don't exist. Right. So this phenomenon spreads itself across a, a whole bunch of different uh, topic areas and some yeah. of the things we've already talked about. But climate change, I think in particular, is in the Trump administration, it's like Fight Club. You just do yeah. not talk about climate change. Uh, and, and we know that at the very beginning, there was this kind of fly-specking of the records of existing staff of the EPA. Who's been to climate conferences? What did you do at the climate, climate conferences? And so they backed off that because the, uh, the public was pressing on it. But it just seems across the board still if there's one subject which is targeted for a kind of calculated erasure, if not complete erasure, a real diminishing in any way uh, of what's known about it or accepted about it within the federal government, it is climate change, right? And, and um, well, anyway, maybe you want to say something about that. Yeah, I mean, I really feel like, I mean, there, you know, again, there are a few areas, and, and this is one of those things where, frankly, it's kind of funny because I, I covered the environment for years before switching to cover the White House and now and now do this broader thing. And so I keep, there are times where, where initially when I'm doing reporting on these stories, I would say, is it me? Am I, you know, is it my problem that I'm finding these examples more easily? But the interesting thing is it really isn't. It's just, it is something which, um, as you mentioned, climate change has become such a hot-button issue. There's, you know, I think what's interesting interesting is it's a combination, a lot of, again, when we're talking about this data disappearing, I mean, these are, you know, decisions being made, you know, to a large extent by political appointees, but there's no question that at times it could be career appointees who are just conscious of the ideology of the incoming administration, and they are taking steps to whether it's rename things, downplay things. Um, so we're seeing this, whether it's, you know, for example, I give the Environmental Protection Agency credit that when they decided on a Friday night to, um, you know, to basically archive uh, and, in, you know, huge sections having to do with climate change on their site. They issued a press release, and they did say that they were doing it. The Interior Department took a lot of climate references out of its website, and they never publicized it at all. So it's kind of interesting who decides to be more public about it and who doesn't, but we're seeing it time and time again crop up at many different agencies, just in the way that certainly we saw the issue of climate change highlighted across the federal government by the Obama administration when they were in office. So there have been small acts of rebellion. One of them is Rahm Emanuel in Chicago moved some of the EPA missing pages under the city of Chicago website. How, how helpful was that? So 
I think that that counts for something. I think the really interesting thing, so, you know, again, they they certainly did basically take a lot of that information and post it on their website. And uh, although, again, you know, I know that basically there's an ongoing discussion to make sure, did they really capture everything, you know, that kind of stuff. What is interesting is that, is it, and it's one of the first questions I ask them, is are you going to maintain the site? Meaning, you know, science gets updated and refined all the time. So it's one thing to archive what this website looked like on January 19th. 2017, but are you willing to put the resources towards updating it over time? Now, I actually think that if they're serious about it, they could uh, maintain it because there are so many scientists working in the field who want to maintain this information. They could kind of crowdsource it going forward. But even that takes time, takes resources. You've got to verify things. And, you know, Chicago's cash trap. They've got, they've got financial problems of their own. So it seems unrealistic that Chicago could do the same level of upkeep that, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency could do if it was committed to doing it. We're talking to Juliet Alprin of the Washington Post. So not only documents uh, disappear, but people do, too. I mean, they don't really disappear. We can actually find them, but they're not where they used to be. Um, And and this is one of the things that's happened within the EPA, where uh, a whole bunch of members of one of its key scientific review boards uh, have been cashiered, basically, are going to be replaced by somebody else. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Basically, what we've seen happen uh, is that there there are a couple of different advisory groups um, that play a, really, you know, a key role for the Environmental Protection Agency, which is is that they provide advice on on different things, including what should be the priorities for research and making sure that there is scientific integrity and rigor behind the research that the agency is doing. Or there's that's that's one board. That's the Board of Scientific Counselors, and there's a second, much larger board that uh, that really does do some of the science and kind of summarize what's the consensus that underpins some of its regulations. And, you know, as with many, you know, outside advisory panels, people have terms, they're up at different points. And what we see with both of these two different groups I'm talking about, a lot of their terms are up this year. And so what has uh, the Environmental Protection Agency decided to do? Its administrator, Scott Pruitt, uh, just decided um, within the last week and a half to essentially uh, dismiss uh, half the board on on one branch. This is the branch of the um, Board of Scientific Counselors by saying, your term is up. We're not renewing you. We're going to take applications. And so you have, you know, nine people who, uh, which is which is really half the members of that science committee who will no longer be serving. And in fact, this not only upset a number of people, but it prompted two other scientists on a separate committee um, that deals with environmental contaminants to say we're stepping down in solidarity because we don't we don't like what's happening to science. And again, there you know there's more to come on this, but it gives you a sense of what's happening in terms of the science under this administration. Yeah, I mean, this probably isn't unique to the Trump administration, but I think it's something that they carry to a, a larger extreme. This isn't something that you've written about recently, but I mean, he's also putting together this uh, this kind of blue ribbon commission about voter fraud. Voter fraud seems to be a rather evanescent, vaporous phenomenon, which people really can't find when they go looking for it. But I mean, he's, you know, his Pence is the chairman of it, but the kind of the vice chairman, the person probably will be steering the, the ship day to day is this guy, Chris Kobach, who's this Kansas, Kansas Secretary of State who really believes in vo- voter fraud. You know, he right. believes in voter fraud the way, you know, climate scientists believe in, in climate change. So, I mean, they're probably going to be able to find some voter fraud if you get the right people uh, in these jobs. And, and 
you know, the other thing that disturbs me, and I, as somebody who does a lot of research the way you do, it, I would imagine it alarms you, running on yet another parallel track to all this is the FCC's look at net neutrality, right? You depend on the Internet working a certain way to do the kind of research, research you're talking about. If Internet provider companies, you know, have more latitude about basically what they showcase and if in, in big companies can kind of essentially control what rises to the top uh, of the uh, of the internet milk bottle, um, that's going to change the flow of information too. Sure, it could. And again, you know, I mean, I think that that with a lot of uh, you know net neutrality is something obviously like I'm familiar with as a user. I don't cover as a you know and and part yeah, of my yeah. beat. But I think there's no question that there's a reassessment going on. And I think one of the really interesting things to see, you know, and and that we'll be watching is we you know we'll look at these things and say, okay, well, so you know these folks' terms were up to absolutely true. You know, usually these these folks have been reappointed, and the previous administration told them they were going to continue serving. But of course, that doesn't you know that doesn't hold once you have a new president who do they put on these panels and i think that's something you know that is really important to kind of try to flesh that out because then we can see are they you know are they industry scientists who have a lot of background in these areas are they people who don't have the experience that you expect and the kind of academic credentials so i think those are all things that really need to be subject to public scrutiny going forward yeah i want to thank you for having this conversation with me i want to wind it up by saying you know that that we've had a lot of conversations about truth and and facts and alternative facts and things like that. Verification is another part of this process. You know, what can you yeah. or can't you verify uh, the reality of something? I was listening to the Chinese novel, novelist uh, Lilia Zhang uh, talk mm-hmm. about what happened when truth and verification were suppressed in China after the Great Leap Forward. After after that period yeah. of the Great Leap Forward, they you know they then had this so-called three years of disaster. They couldn't produce grain, and they basically were allowed to lie about how much grain that they had. They even exported grain while somewhere between twenty and forty million people in the country starve to death. So, you know, when you suppress information, when you make it impossible for people to verify whether something is true or false, you set up the potential for some fairly dangerous policy decisions down the road. Um, anyway, yeah. on that grim note, um, <laughs> enjoy the rest of your day, though, Julia. Uh, anyway, I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us. We're going to take a little break. We're going to talk about, well, not something lighter, really. We're going to talk about the Vatican and the Holy See, really. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. Your facts don't really count My facts add up to what I want them to I just say the amount So, not to make excuses, but I have to tell you that on Friday I had uh, some dental or some oral surgery, basically, that you know, kind of didn't go all that well. So I was kind of uh, in misery all weekend long. I couldn't sleep very well, and I still can't open my mouth all the way. So, um, you, know, I'm, you know, I guess it's going to be okay. But for that reason, I'm going to talk about Callista Gingrich in the next 20 minutes, and I guarantee you on at least one occasion, not because of my mouth, but because I'm really tired, because I haven't had much sleep, I'm going to say Flockhart at least once. And I, I'm admitting to that already. I just I know it'll happen. Um, maybe uh, good things will happen, too. Uh, I know good things will happen because we have one of our favorite guests here. Michael Sean Winters uh, writes the daily blog Distinctly Catholic for the National Catholic Reporter. So this is not yet official. The bow has not been tied on this, nor have the candles been lit. But everybody seems pretty comfortable reporting. And I mean, the mainstream news outlets now seem pretty comfortable reporting that that Callista Gingrich barring some, you know, failure to, you know, to clear the ethics probe 
or, you know, maybe some of her old performances in Ally McBeal. No, see, that's the other Callista. Uh, no, it'll obviously, uh, she'll have to go through some vetting, but Callista Gingrich appears to be headed to be the ambassador to the Holy See, uh, which is the essentially governmental version of the Vatican. Uh, and so joining us to talk about that, as I said before, Michael Sean Winters. Welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Colin. So, um, I guess maybe the first thing that we should say about this job is it's it's not and it's not axiomatic that it's going to be filled by a completely distinguished and amazingly accomplished person. There have been some people like that in the in this the short history of this job and maybe some people not so much, right? Yeah, I think it's you know this is one of those jobs like ambassador to France or ambassador to England that's traditionally given to uh, a, a prominent supporter perhaps a, a, a large donor or something like that. It's not a job that would be typically given to, you know, a career diplomat. Uh, there's there's career diplomatic staff to help whoever is appointed, uh, and they can make what they want uh, of it. Um, but it's, it's, this is not surprising in that regard that they're not turning to a career diplomat. Right. So in the past, people like Lindy, Lindy Boggs, Cokie's mom uh, and uh, Ray Flynn, former mayor, have done. I think they've been at least there's maybe been at least one other former mayor in the job too. But some of the people have been kind of like major donors, and you know, I don't know, people who teach theology somewhere or something. Uh, you can you can get that job. I guess what makes this a little unusual is that I mean, if anybody if people know anything about Callista Gingrich, they know that she's the third wife of Newt Gingrich, uh, and that they're. Um, their love that they discovered for one another uh, happened during the course of Newt Gingrich's second marriage. Um, and is this something that's going to matter to the Vatican? Will they be bothered by something? Or the Holy See, we should say. Will the Holy See be bothered by something like that? I, well, I don't think the, her name would have been floated if the Holy See had not already signed off on this. Um, and, and to be clear, she testified under oath in his second divorce proceeding that they had a six-year-long affair. Now, this was in 1999, uh, which was one year after Mr. Gingrich had helped lead the impeachment of Bill Clinton for a six-minute affair. Um, so I think, you know, there's a, <laughs> there was uh, certainly at the time a great deal of scandal. Um, we now know that, you know, he had gone through the process and gotten his prior marriages annulled. Uh, so although they were not married in the Catholic Church, which might have uh, presented a problem to the Vatican, uh, all of that has since been regularized, uh, as it was in the case of Ted Kennedy and, and his second marriage, right? He, he uh, got a, a, an annulment from his first marriage. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to be a problem. After all, this is – we now have Pope Francis, who am I to judge? Um, you know, it's kind of a different flavor uh, there. What is interesting is, of course, he's not just uh, the pope of who am I to judge. He's also the pope who has really brought back the social justice teachings of the Catholic Church, which I think, you know, charitably, you could say uh, Mr. Gingrich uh, is not on board that program. Right. So I think the the very benign look at this is, you know, I mean, if you could say anything about the Roman Catholic Church, one of the things you'd say is that it sets up a path to atonement and reconciliation. Uh, it, it offers people who, whose lives have not been perfect uh, and an opportunity under the right circumstances, doing the right things, um, following the right uh, principles and guides to set their houses straight. Um, and Callista Gingrich seems like somebody who's actually a pretty seriously devout Catholic. Like, um, probably she's done all those things. And, you know, I mean, from a certain point of view, you can almost kind of make sense, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting here, and I put this in my blog post this morning, is uh, we will see some hypocrisy on the right. Uh, certain Catholic conservatives have been, you know, fretting now for over a decade that gay marriage was some kind of threat to merit to the institution of marriage. Uh, and uh, as, as I argue, I think adultery has always been the larger threat and certainly a more proximate threat. Mm-hmm. And it will be interesting to see if they raise any of those issues. And I, I doubt they will, because uh, the Catholic conservatives are quite capable of being hypocrites. So, you know, the only reason that the only other reason this is interesting is, as you suggest, uh, there are any number of ways in which the the relationship such as it will be between Pope Francis and President Donald Trump could kind of take shape and play itself out in the in the public sphere. They may have a few little things that they agree about, but they probably have more things that they disagree about. Um, is part of the job uh, of this U.S. ambassador, I mean, even though the ambassador is to the Holy See, not exactly to the Pope, really, uh, but I mean, one of the things, I suppose, one of the ways she could define her job would be to somehow or other wiggle a pin into that grenade, find some ways in which these two men would be more comfortable with each other when their principles do seem pretty far apart, at least on those social and economic justice things that you mentioned at the beginning. Right. I think, you know, an ambassador's job is first and foremost to explain the positions of the president. Now, in this case, with this president, that is itself an onerous task. Um, and and I think you will see, uh, as, as you say, looking for some common ground. The Pope on uh, this weekend when he was flying back from Portugal was asked about the upcoming meeting with Trump. And he said, you know, I don't prejudge things. And, you know, there's always a way to open a door. If you're looking to open the door, there's always a way to open the door. So the Vatican, you know, has a lot of business with the United States. Uh, They certainly want this meeting to go well, and they want the relationship uh, to go well. As we remember during the campaign, uh, the Holy Father uh, coming back from Mexico was asked about Trump's comments about the wall. And he said, this is not the these are not the words of a Christian. And Trump, in turn, tweeted something nasty about the pope. So, you know, there there is a possibility this relationship is going to go sour and do so in a very public way, just because, as we know, Mr. Trump is capable of having a Twitter rant at any time on any given subject. Uh, But I think that certainly the Vatican is going to try to smooth things over. uh, And 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 this appointment would not have happened unless the Vatican had signed off on it. Right. So Pope Francis uh, tweets, too. Yeah, it's sort of weird the way things have worked. I mean, two or three weeks ago, Pope Francis was seen uh, shaking hands with Bill O'Reilly. Now he's got Calista Gingrich coming to the Vatican. He's got uh, Trump uh, heading towards him uh, across from across the globe. It's like, does he does he not know any Democrats? (laughs) Oh, I think he does. And I think he, uh, you know, certainly thinks in line with uh, Democrats on some of the social justice issues, uh, obviously, maybe even to the left of what would be acceptable in the Democratic Party today. Uh, Remember, Bernie Sanders was at the Vatican last year during the campaign and uh, actually, you know, met the Holy Father. Um, So, uh, you know, it's always in the interest of of the Vatican to deal with whoever you're dealing with. They never, uh, they, they got a lot of grief when they received a governmental official from Iran, whenever they meet with the head of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, you know, th- th- that goes with the turf. But their policy is pretty much to meet with everyone. 
You know, Michael Sean, you would know so much more about this than I do, but I always had the suspicion back when I wrote a lot more about the Catholic Church, and back in those days, the man who had this job, I believe his name was Cardinal Jean Jadot, I think he was Belgian, but I, it always seemed to me that what was much more important than who we sent to the Holy See was who they sent over here in the form of a papal nuncio. To me, that's sort of where the rubber uh, met the road in terms of kind of influencing stuff that maybe went on in the United States and the way that church spoke in the United States. So I know we got a French nuncio now, which is uh, probably a first. Is that, I mean, what, contrast the importance of these two things. Who knows what Calista Gingrich is going to do over there? I feel like nuncios really do make kind of a big difference over here. They do. And ironically, I just got a picture that was taken of, of me with the new nuncio uh, uh, at the uh, March 13th. They have a big party to celebrate the pope's election. Right. And he was in and, Mexico uh, before he came here, right? Yeah, he was in Mexico before that. Uh, he is uh, French born. Uh, he's he's certainly a, an improvement over the previous nuncio. Uh, the nuncio has two jobs. Uh, one is to conduct relations with the government. Mm. But the even more important job is they play a key a gatekeeper role in the selection of new bishops. Right. So when uh, a diocese opens, I think the most recent in Connecticut would have been Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. When that opened, they uh, looked at what the diocese needed, assembled a list of three names, and that's how the process begins, is a list of three names going from the nuncio here in Washington to Rome. So that's obviously a very, very influential position. Uh, and Christophe Pierre clearly, you know, having come from Mexico, is aware of the migrant problem, uh, certainly is you know, a strong defender of the Holy Father and wouldn't be in Washington uh, if, if he was not. Uh, now, I, I, obviously, that appointment was made over a year ago mm-hmm. or, or I guess just about a year ago. So yeah. um, it, it was before Trump had been elected president and they didn't know he'd be dealing with that. But I, I think your instinct is right. It's a key position. Now, the Vatican, what they're looking for from the U.S. ambassador is access. And in my column this morning, I talked about a story, uh, the, the one Connecticut native who has been an ambassador to the Vatican, Tom Malady, told me that uh, the Vatican, uh, when Bill Clinton nominated Lindy Boggs, the, he got a call from somebody at the Vatican. They wanted to know if she had access to the decision makers. And, uh, you know, they thought, well, her husband, Hale, had been in leadership. He had been majority leader, but she really had not been in leadership in the Congress. And he explained that her son ran the most influential lobbying firm in Washington. So she was appointed. He told her this story, uh, Ambassador Milady. And about three months later, it got tested with the Secretary of State of the Vatican, called her in on some urgent matter and said, you know, can you address this? And she looked at him and said, can I borrow your phone? Called right there, sitting, yeah. dialed the number, and had Madeleine Albright on the phone in two minutes. That's what the Vatican wants. Right, exactly. The Secretary of the State of the Vatican, we should point out, is a cardinal. Um, right. Yeah. Um, well, not everybody knows that. Uh, all right. Well, Michael Sean Winters, so great to talk to you. Uh, uh, Michael Sean writes the daily blog, Distinctly Catholic, for the National Catholic Reporter. You should absolutely check that out. Uh, we have to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to. It's a good thing that the Catholic correspondent won't be part of this. We're going to talk about swearing. We're not going to swear, but we're going to talk about swearing. We're going to do everything but swear. We swear we won't swear.
the records of who produced today's show have been pulled from our website, but it, it might be Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is our ambassador to the High Sparrow. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jude Law. Tomorrow's show is about the Russian who's been influencing American politics. It's Ayn Rand, not Putin. And now, back to Colin. All right, so I may have to vamp for a couple of seconds here. That's good. I like vamping. Um, first of all, let me just do some housekeeping matters. So you may notice the Ayn Rand show coming on tomorrow. That's a really good show, but we did do it uh, many months ago. Um, and uh, the reason we're doing that, we, we're go- we have going through a little bit of a rough patch. I have my uh, have had my aforementioned teeth woes. Uh, and uh, Jonathan McNichol, one of our uh, fine producers here, has had a little bit of a family medical I wouldn't say crisis exactly, but a family medical thing anyway, which requires uh, his attention. Uh, so tomorrow we're going to put that Ayn Rand show on and give uh, ourselves a chance to regroup. And then on Wednesday, and this is something to sort of maybe pay some attention to. So on Wednesday, the way it's going to work is I'm going to do The Wheelhouse with John Dankosky uh, and I don't know who else uh, at 9 o'clock. Then uh, at 11 o'clock, John and I are going to come back on the air. Uh, and we're going to uh, offer anchored coverage of the visit of the aforementioned Mr. Trump uh, to New London, to the Coast Guard Academy, where he is giving a commencement address. And so we don't really know when that commencement address is going to happen, but whenever it does happen, we will then carry it live. Meanwhile, John and I will be doing pretty much what I'm doing right now, which is stalling for time. No, actually, we're going to be doing – we've got guests, and we'll take calls, and there'll be lots of analysis and everything. But obviously, it's um, – It'll be interesting. We don't really know what President Trump is going to say, uh, but he's in an unusual position right now, uh, and he hasn't given that many public speeches. And this is certainly, uh, as a visit to a blue state, uh, unique. Uh, so we're we're eager to give that full coverage. So anyway, that's what's coming up in the next couple of days. Meanwhile, okay, now we're ready to go. Meanwhile. Um, Alan Burdick was on with us uh, to uh, talk recently about time, uh, and so it's appropriate that he's back now. He's the author, by the way, of Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. It's a terrific book uh, if you feel like you don't understand time or you feel as though you have an unhealthy relationship with time. It's absolutely the book that you want to get. And, you know, Alan, I was saying that um, in a way what happened last week possibly at a quantum level, was that the space-time continuum, continuum was torn open, allowing a lot of Watergate material to seep into the present moment. And at the time of Watergate, when those t- tapes were revealed, Americans, I was a- alive at the time, uh, Americans were shocked to find out that the president swore. The president had terrible language. Uh, a lot of the, um, just for the sake of decorum, a lot of the transcripts of the tapes would have these things where it would just say expletive deleted. And I think most people didn't even know what an expletive was at that time. People had to look up what an expletive was. But an expletive was, of course, a very bad word that President Nixon was saying. And one thing that you've noted uh, in The New Yorker now is that um, there's there's a lot of that going around that President Trump himself uh, often uh, does not delete his own expletives and uses some of the earthiest ones on the campaign trail. He vowed to bomb the S word out of ISIS. Uh, he suggested that U.S. companies that move their operations overseas could go F word themselves and proposed to begin trade negotiations with China by saying, listen, you MF words. Uh, as he t- and then he even told the office, the audience at the, at the national prayer breakfast, the hell with it. I can say that one on the air. So, Alan, what's going on here? Well, uh, uh, swearing is definitely um, 
on the rise. I mean, that's that's been noted. It's on TV more. Kids say it more, although kids say it more because their parents say it more, not because it's on TV more. And it's very much in the public discourse. Um, not only uh, is the president saying it, but uh, Democrats are kind of picking up the uh, the cursing baton. You can now buy a $30 T-shirt from the um, Democratic National Committee that says, uh, we give an S-word about people. Mm. Um then the question would be, where would you wear that? Because, like, yeah. uh, on a city bus, you might be, uh, you could reasonably be asked to. Yeah, and, and you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, who seems like a very decorous kind of person, but in the New York Magazine profile of her, uh, she says uh, she uses the F word and the effing word and a BS word. And, and, and so, is this something where, I mean, one, one possible way of looking at it as that there's sort of a populist bona fides that's being evoked here, that um, I'm not going to pretend that I talk any nicer than the rest of you people out there. Is that is that part of that? That's that's part of it. I mean, there's there's like a hundred years worth of theories about why people swear and what, what we get out of it. Um, one is social acceptance. You know, you're sort of more part of the group if if you swear like everybody else. There's a rhetorical advantage if, you know, truck drivers are doing it and you want to sound like a man of the people, um, then, you know, then you want to do it too. Um, And there's a certain emotional catharsis, um, uh, uh, you know, that you get from from swearing too, an emotional release. And and there is a lot of research indicating that um, neurologically, Swearing is almost an emotional language. Um, it, 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 you know, the, the words are, are kind of generated by parts of the brain that um, mediate emotions. There was a great study of a patient um, who had lost basically half his brain to an injury, and uh, he, could, he could not really say any words at all, um, and he couldn't even say swear words if you asked him to. But if he got frustrated... He could he could swear perfectly well, um, and that's all that he could do. So so it, it's Wasn't, like was he the one who was like a priest or something too? There was some other reason why he shouldn't be doing this. I can't remember. Oh no, the, you're you're thinking of a, of a parish priest in, yeah. in 1843 who'd had a stroke and he could only say two words, um, I himself and uh, the f word in French. So. Um, and we also know, I mean, as long as we're on the research here and looking at kind of the social science and the biological science of this, that swearing does seem to create new capacities in people or increased capacities in people. Like, what was the whole thing about putting your hand in cold water? Yeah, this was kind of an amazing study. Uh, it, it was done in 2009, and the researcher, a psychologist named Richard Stevens at Keele University in, in the U.K., he had volunteers put their hand in a, in a bucket of ice, in a, of ice water, and hold it there for as long as they could. And sometimes he would have them repeat a neutral word, like wooden or brown, a word that described the table, basically. And other times he would have them repeat a swear word of their choice, a word that they would say if they had hit their hand with a hammer. And really, uh, almost across the board, the people who repeated the swear word you know, again and again and again, could hold their hand in the bucket of ice for longer, sometimes as long as, you know, 40 seconds on average, longer. But, and and what's notable is, is they're not shouting the word. Mm-hmm. They're just repeating it over and over and over again. So it's it's the valence of the word, not not the 
expression of it, not, you know. Was it also the case that at least on one occasion it seemed as though the less that swearing was a special occasion, the less power it granted people in that way? In other words, if you kind of habituate to swearing and it's not at all eventful in your mind, it doesn't quite give you those powers to resist cold? Yeah, he, 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 the same researcher did that study too, and I asked him about it. He, you know, he, he looked at whether people who swear more over the course of the day kind of lose this um, kind of pain relief effect of swearing. And, and initially he did, but he told me that he'd found that, um, that result very hard to replicate. Mm. So he's, he's not quite ready to fully stand by it. So that's research about what happens when people say bad words. Do we know anything about what happens to people who hear bad words? That has been looked at a little bit, and there, there doesn't really seem to be um, the same kind of correlation. I mean, studies have found that when people say um, bad words out loud, mm. uh, the conductance of their skin increases, and, and that's a kind of a, um, uh, an insider measure of your emotional response without knowing that you're you know, having an emotional response. It's kind of a, an indicator of your, uh, of your stress, and your stress level goes up when you say these words. But it's not the case that your stress level goes up necessarily when you hear those words. So that's interesting. So, I mean, the other part of this is how we construct the world that we live in. So, um, and, and, and there often are ways in which we invent mythologies. I think about sort of who swears and whoever swore before and all this kind of stuff. So in 1939, Gone with the Wind comes out and we hear this. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Oh, no. <laughs> so, um, you know, and so this caused a great furor, a much bigger furor than the fact that that movie made it look like slavery was like this really kind of okay thing that didn't really bother slaves very much, but um, which probably should have created a bigger furor. But the, the reality was that it, there was a fairly new code in place. And prior to that, people had sworn in movies. People, I mean, they'd said hell and damn. And maybe I think, uh, I forget who it is, but I think some famous actor said goddamn once in, in a movie. But it does seem as though one of the things that we can say, maybe not all that scientifically, Alan, is that once you open the floodgates a little crack, crack they open even... I mean, imagine anybody getting upset about anybody saying damn in any context these days. There are just sort of ways in which the the waves just wear away at the cliff after a while. Yeah, I mean, if everybody is swearing, is anybody swearing? <laughs> right? If, right. If, if the words are so normalized, do they, do they still carry the, the same valence? You know, it used to be you know, George Carlin had his whole riff about the words you couldn't say on television, and now, you know, we have a president basically saying them on television. Um, at the same time, you know, there are new words that are, that are entering the, the rubric that are really taboo. Um, racial slurs are, are, are the big ones, and, you know, we know what those are. And in polls of, you know, when they ask people, you know, what are the words that most offend them, uh, you know, when, when they hear these words on TV, you know, the N-word is usually number one or number two. Right. The N-word is so fascinating to me, too, because, I mean, for a lot of different reasons. But uh, I remember I was on the air during the, uh, the O.J. case, and so it, it was revealed that, um, that there was testimony to suggest that Mark Furman, the investigating detective, had used that word in the past. Um, so this is a word that's pretty material to the case. Uh, and um, 
and for the most part, um, journalism wouldn't say the word. In other words, they call it the N word or they euphemize it somehow. Um, and at the time, I thought, well, I mean, it's not as though you're yelling it at somebody right now. You're, it's now, uh, you know, a word that's material to the case. But its power was so great, and I think is still so great, that there's a real reluctance to say it, even in a situation where, just on an informational basis, it would make some sense. But it, it maybe is a word that dare not speak its name. Yeah. I, I actually asked the researcher, you know, this ice bucket challenge you, you did with, you know, profanities like the F word and the, the C word. Uh, could you could you kind of replicate that with the N word? You know, would it have the same effect? And he said, well, you know, ethically, I just don't think I don't think we could carry out that study. Right. And the, the other thing that I would say is, and here I'm about to um, ask the indulgence of my patient listeners even more about this, but, you know, there's a word that we might describe as the C word, which, which was a word that you just simply didn't say anywhere. It was really, it, it was assigned a level of vulgarity that was deeper and more profound than the F word or the S word or even the MF word, you know, that this really was just a word that wasn't said anywhere. In Britain, it's kind of slung around all the time like a rather an idle taunt. Uh, but I mean, here it uh, accorded great power. And I, f- I can even see there was even a shot of uh, on, on Twitter, I think, uh, during the uh, Republican presidential um, convention of Scott Bayo, a Trump supporter, standing next to a sign that assigned that word to Hillary Clinton. And I was just really kind of shocked by that. But uh, I suppose, once again, it is there's a normalization of things. I mean, uh, uh, it's it's a gradual wearing away. But the most verboten thing, I suppose, can be at least a, a little bit more normalized five yeah. or 10 years down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, some conservative media outlets are now complaining that the Democrats are, are basically ruining society by uh, by swearing too much and trying to make profanity, you know, the new normal. Well, I, I think I think it'll never be the new normal. I, I, and my I still think there are sort of rules about where things happen. I was watching a movie. I won't say which movie, but I was watching a movie um, uh, over the weekend, a movie that's in the theaters, where attention was called to the fact that one of the characters is, was uh, who's the oh no I'll say it, it's Guardians of the Galaxy. And there's a, a scene at the end where little baby Groot uh, uses a word that I you know that the raccoon interprets as the F word. And he goes, you know, we're gonna have to have a conversation about your language. And I was realizing. I'd watched like 7,000 people die in this movie and nobody had sworn the entire time. So, you know, there is some way in which these words still have power. Uh, Alan Burdick, so great to talk to you. Alan Burdick writes for The New Yorker. He's the author of, and you should get it, we have it, Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. Tomorrow, we'll be back with a conversation about Ayn Rand. If you didn't hear it the first time, this is a really good show. I'm not just saying this to mollify you or in any way pump up my own good feelings. It really is a good show, uh, and we'll be back on Wednesday with all kinds of Trump in Connecticut coverage.